Hi, I'm Jerry Grant, and this is a series of programs we're calling Disc Jockey Confidential here on WVUD and WVUD HD1 in Newark, the voice of the University of Delaware. I'll be interviewing some of my fellow VUD jocks to find out what path they took to arrive here at the radio station. We'll discuss their earliest experiences with music and radio and how those experiences inform their own show currently on WVUD. Today's guest is J. Michael Foster, the head of jazz and classical programming at WVUD, the host of his own Avenue C Jazz program on Monday nights, and the host of various classical programs midday. Welcome, Michael. Thank you. Thank you for inviting me. Uh, you're a little different here at WVUD in that you do more than one show and more than one genre. So why don't you tell me about your shows? I do that because that's the way uh, my music training, if you will, or how I got into music was equally jazz and classical music, and I never have been able to put one in front of the other, so I just do both when I can. Uh, for the classical music programs, uh, everybody, I was once called the, uh, the undertaker of classical music because I frequently celebrate <laughs> people who have recently passed away or people whose anniversaries or birthdays uh, come up, and that's because frequently these people are uh, people that the average listener is not familiar with, and so I like to bring them to the fore. Uh, and sometimes they are familiar people, and they just deserve to be brought to the fore. So I, that's part of my programming. I like to support the local uh, music institutions uh, by uh, previewing concerts that are, and recitals that are happening, and I take those and and other things and just sort of create a puzzle uh, that becomes a program, and most of the time it works. With the jazz, I'm pretty much doing the same thing. I uh, like to draw from the new releases. We don't ignore the classic performances or whatever. So that's the approach to the programs. Tell us a little bit about where you were born and where you grew up. I was born in Norfolk, Virginia, and when I came along in Norfolk, which was not a particularly cultural town, it was a Navy town, there was a classical music station, and there was uh, a MOR, middle-of-the-road radio station, which was sort of, as there were in most cities, the station that most of the adults listened to. Right. And the MOR stations, at, the, at least in Norfolk, presented a wide variety of music all sort of mixed together, uh, pop song, pop entertainers, uh, mainstream jazz like Dave Brubeck or, and uh, Broadway excerpts and, and folk type music, commercial folk music, all together. And this is another way I learned about a lot of different uh, genres of music all at one time. I think the station was very good. I thought it was very good. Mm -hmm. uh, and the other thing was that when I was a child, I have this one mem this memory of my parents having given me, or probably my grandparents having given me a toy drum set. I mean, like a full drum set. Oh. And I would sit in, in front of the radio and play along with the music, play along with the music. Uh, so obviously the interest in music was there as well as the interest in radio and the interest in radio as a source of the music. A little while later, after I was involved in public school music and more involved in classical music as a, as a musician, quote unquote, mm -hmm. I turned to the uh, classical music radio station which basically played the music that everybody knew, except that I was in eighth grade and I didn't know all that music. So it was a revelation to me, much of it. 
And that was the way that I got started in listening to music, plus it being in public school music, in, the, in bands in junior high school and high school. And early on, because a friend of mine was, listen, uh, was reading record review magazines, I started subscribing. And you can learn a lot from a very small review if you, if you put your mind to it. So that was, that was sort of the seed of it all. I, I heard uh, announcers that I liked. I liked what they do, were doing. And I think that there's some of that still in, in uh, what I do today, some 60, 70, no, not 70, 60 years later, uh, the influence is there. I should ask you about your voice mm-hmm. because uh, you have one of the great radio voices here at WVUD and in the history of radio, if you ask me. But uh, <laughs> I just wonder, did you work on your voice uh, at an early age? or I think I did, yes. I think I listened to people, announcers, not just for what they were saying, but the way they were saying it and for the, what they were saying um, and modeled myself after uh, what they were doing. And there were several different people in several different genres that uh, interested me. So there was a little bit of this and a little bit of that. And there was a man in Washington. I had in-laws in Washington at that point that I really, really liked. I really liked the way he did things. And when I came, came home or wherever I was going, uh, I sounded just like him uh-huh. when I was in front of a microphone. And then as a man... Uh, a legend in, in, in New England classical music, Robert J. Lertzema. And I used to vacation for a couple of weeks every year in New England and listen to him every morning. And when I would come back in whatever station I was working for, I was little Robert J. Lertzema. And I had to shake myself and say, no, Michael, you're Michael. Some of it, not all of it. you know. And, and so, yes, I was listening to what they were doing. I was thinking about what they were doing. Somebody said, oh, when they were talking to me on the phone one day, you're practicing for your radio, aren't you? And I said, yeah, I think I am, aren't I? Anytime I had a microphone, whether it was the telephone or a microphone or anything, I was very much aware of what I was, uh, how I was talking and how I was saying things. Plus the fact that everybody says, oh, well, you don't sound like a Virginian. No, I don't, because um, in Norfolk, you don't hear one predominant accent because of all the Navy personnel there, and my father came from Illinois, and my mother came from Tidewater, Virginia, so there was no one accent that I was hearing all the time. If you listen carefully, a little bit of Virginia slips in, uh, and that's that's a good thing, too. Sure. Uh, so that was my training, is, is by listening, and, and I always say to people who want to start, I said, well, listen not to just to what the uh, announcer is saying, but the way he's saying it, and Listen for things that you like, uh, that you want to incorporate in who you are. Was your was your family a military family? Uh, sort of. My father was in the Coast Guard during World War II, and my mother was in the American Red Cross. Not that that's military, but that's where they met. And my father just settled in Tidewater, and like a lot of military families, just never left. When I, By the time I came along, he was out of the military, thank goodness. I lived for 21 years in Norfolk. Were they were your parents classical music fans? Not at all, not music fans at all. My father liked Blue Baron and uh, Jan Garber, people like that, in from the big band era, and the the people who sang and played beautifully, not 
jazz or classical music. Right, <laughs> And right. my mother could care less. About, well, actually, my mother got me into music, so I can't say she, could, she uh, could care less. She was determined that I got all aspects of, of education that I could, and she wanted me to take piano lessons, and I wouldn't do that, and she wanted me to take ballroom dancing, and I did that, but that wasn't enough. So finally, when sixth grade or fifth grade, when they were recruiting for band, she said, you're going to be in the band now. <laughs> and so I went to the assembly and band director who was conducting the assembly and demonstrating the instruments said that the French horn was an easy instrument. May he have roasted in hell for just a short period of time <laughs> uh, because it, it ain't. And uh, so I started playing the French horn uh, when I was in sixth grade. Uh, but not the in, the influence was from radio, not from uh, anything that they did. And I started buying records in eighth grade, seventh or eighth grade. Yeah, so that was going to be my next question. Yeah. Right? Do you remember the first record you bought? Yes, I do. It it was um, if you remember the the Western series Wyatt Earp. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, Hugh O'Brien. Yes, mm-hmm. Hugh O'Brien made a record, and I had to have it. And my parents were very reluctant uh, for me to buy it. And they were more reluctant still after I started because it was the one I had. So I was playing it all the time. Right. And uh, so that was the first. And then first LP that I bought. Oh, that was an LP? Yeah. Okay. Oh, yeah. Oh. You went all in. Yeah. On you, O'Brien. All right. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) That's all right. (laughs) Well, he or somebody sang well. Sure, sure, sure. And then I... Uh, later bought 1812 Overture and uh, an LP of horn music. So it was all pretty obvious for quite some time. Unfortunately, I didn't stop. I was going to ask, so you had a, there was obviously a, a record player, a long player in your house. Yes, it was, it was the Sears piece of furniture that had a, a record player in it. So sure. It wasn't much, but it certainly serves my purposes. The stereo really was a piece of furniture and was in the living room. Right. And so when I started playing the stereo, everybody went to the family room, <laughs> except for me, that I kept think, saying to them, you don't know how lucky you are that I'm listening to classical and jazz instead of uh, Elvis Presley or whatever. Right. They didn't right. buy that either. So you're in grade school. You take up the French horn and it doesn't last too long or did you stick with it oh, for no. a while? Uh, I stuck with it all the way through college. I was very good on the French horn, except that more than most instruments, you really needed to practice. And I didn't like to practice. Right. And so invariably there were people ahead of me who did like to practice or did practice anyway. Mm-hmm. And it's a very lonely experience to be in a practice room with just you and the French horn, I can assure you. So that made it even more difficult. You know, it's not like playing trumpet or clarinet or whatever. Right. So I never was quite as good as I probably should have been, but it was something that, yes, I enjoyed playing with the ensembles. It was a great thrill in playing. And as I say, I played it through college. I majored in music, the University mm-hmm. of Richmond, mm-hmm. and played through in graduate school uh, at North Carolina where they had a, a wind ensemble that I could play in. But finally, when I got to the point of where I was working eight hours a day and I was uh, running uh, six hours of a radio station at that point, I had an excuse not to practice and after a while, when the uh, tiniest little intervals were hard to play, 
it just ceased to be satisfying anymore. I had that pleasure, and it just wasn't a pleasure anymore, and I went on to other aspects of like doing radio and sure. writing and that sort of thing. Sure. Jazz and classical, are they coexisting at this point? The FM station that played classical music had uh, jazz as, as the afternoon drive show. And, of course, as I said, there were mainstream jazz musicians like Dave Brubeck and Duke Ellington and people like that that were played on the middle-of-the-road station. So I was hearing jazz and gravitating to jazz and then started hearing the classical music and, of course, was playing classical music in in the uh, school band, high school band especially. So the experiences were both there. I remember that the first jazz programs I was listening to on the FM station had the intro of this very sultry blonde saying, and now, Weldon K. Smith. And I thought, yes, that's what I want to have. I want to have somebody introducing my show that way. (laughs) Uh, It never happened, unfortunately. It's just a little too much sugar, I think. But Mm -hmm. it was a good, the man was a good uh, announcer, and he, he chose well. And in Norfolk, we were fortunate to have Dave Brubeck come every year, and we would go and see him every year, and uh, some of the big bands would come through, and, and Al Hurt and Louis Armstrong. So I got a, a chance to hear all of these people live uh, there, and there were jazz festivals regularly in the Tidewater area that I went to from the probably the end of high school all the way through college when I'd come back in the summer. And then when I went to Richmond to go to college, I thought I had gone to heaven because Richmond is a, is a very cultural city and they have a very fine symphony orchestra, which I immediately um, subscribed to, went to their concerts, and plus all the music concerts that took place on campus. Do you recall uh, first hearing live music? I mean, uh, in grade school or in the home? Or, well, that um, wasn't such a good experience. We had... As part of the school curriculum, students from all of the elementary schools in town, I don't know what was a one-shot thing or whatever, gathered in this auditorium that held probably a couple of thousand people, and the symphony orchestra played. But I can't remember a thing they played, but I remember the conductor, who was uh, old-school German, would turn around and regularly shush us. And I thought, you can't have 2,000 or 1,000 or however many of us there were elementary school uh, children in a room and it'd be quiet. So that was my first live uh, introduction to to, uh, music. And it took anyway. (laughs) With jazz, did you go to any clubs or anything like that? No, no, no. No, you always did a concert concert setting? Yeah, the concert setting. It was a long time before I ever went into a jazz club, and I still prefer concerts because people are there to listen and right. not to eat and drink and talk. So not very often have I gone into jazz clubs. I went to a place in Washington where there was a concert with the guitarist named Jim Hall yeah. and a trombonist named Bob Brookmeyer. Both of them cool musicians, uh, very understated, and that was all. It's just the two of them playing. And this was in the middle of the afternoon, so there weren't but 12 people in there anyway. And four of them came to talk. And they talked through the whole thing. And it was, mm-hmm. it was just, you know, you wanted to just wring their little necks. <laughs> uh, uh, All right. Well, so um, 
you where did you go to high school? Just we'll give your high school a shout out. Granby High School in in uh, Norfolk. It was the largest high school. I think I graduated in a course a class of six hundred people. We had a very fine band program, and I learned an awful lot about music from there, uh, classical music. And because the band repertoire is mainly started growing in the twentieth century. My interest in classical music really became uh, 20th century music because of listening from that standpoint. And it has remained so. And people who listen to my broadcast wonder why I don't play Mozart or Brahms very often. But, But that's the reason. This is where I started. And this is the music that appeals to me most. So you went to the University of Richmond. That was an odd situation because music was not a big department in Richmond. It was really aimed, the University of Richmond at that point was a Baptist university. And the emphasis in the music department was to to start church musicians. So the emphasis was on uh, piano players, organists, and singers. And they uh, were quite surprised when this horn player wanted to major. Even though I wasn't majoring in performance, I was majoring in in, uh, music history, an academic major. Mm -hmm. And so we had... uh, a wind ensemble, quote-unquote, of 12 people for the first three years that I was there. Then a new band director came, and we actually had, I think, somewhere between 30 and 50. So the experience in Richmond was not so much in the playing, but uh, in the study of music and being able to go to the events that were taking place in Richmond. And, uh, and you knew that would be your major when you entered Richmond? No, no. I really hadn't given it much thought. You know how it is. You know how it is. Well, and sometimes when you do give a lot of thought, it's fruitless because it changes in a, right, in a year or two. Right, right. Uh, but I had no idea. But I took a music appreciation course plus the, the band course. And I just realized that that's what I wanted to spend my time doing. I had no idea what I was going to do with it, especially not with an academic degree. And then it became kind of uh, probably glorified idea that yes, I was going to uh, write about music, be a music critic. I'm a good critic. Uh, I'll tell you about that afterwards when what you've done wrong, <laughs> and uh, you know, and and radio. And I, I thought, well, everybody who's on makes a living that way, don't they? Uh, well, yeah, <laughs> well, kind of. There's something to learn there too. But yes, yes, and there was. Right. Yes. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, the other thing I learned is that when they start paying you, they want you to do what they want you to do. Sure. When they don't pay you, they can't do that as much. Now, I forget from from your bio there, but are, did you start on college radio? Did you? Yes, there was a there was a station, uh, WCRC. Richmond was a. Um, a cooperative school. They had a men's school and a women's school uh, mm-hmm. college uh, that were not completely separate, but basically separate. Tulane is like that. Uh, Harvard is like that with whatever their school is. Right. Um, so WC was West Hampton College, Richmond College. And it was a carrier current station. And I'll bet you, not even you remember what a carrier current station well, is. I do remember the early days of, of WHEN, I believe, right? Which was, yeah, I think um, so. Yeah. It comes through the electrical outlets. It comes through the electrical outlets. And so right. you can only broadcast, if you will, to the buildings that are hooked up. And that was where I started. And, and again, I was sort of an odd 
odd duck there because everybody else was doing rock and roll. Right. And I was doing classical and jazz or trying to, mostly jazz at that particular point. It was a good place to start. And once again, there was nobody to tell me what to do because nobody knew what to tell me what to do. So right. I kind of liked that. The nature of college radio. Was, yeah. it, was it block programming or what do you recall? Uh, I don't think it was block. I think it was just, you know, you came, came in and do, did your show like uh, so many college radio stations are. Who knows who was listening? My girlfriend was. And beyond that, I can't say. Right. What was your slot? Do you remember your slot? Or? Not at all. No, okay. Not at all. I remember okay. I started fall my uh, sophomore year, and that is as of the end of uh, the fall of last year, my 50th year in broadcasting. I never thought I would uh, be in broadcasting. I thought I'd outlive radio. Mm-hmm. And I thus far haven't yet so congratulations i'm 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 kind of pleased with that yes Mm -hmm. i guess i am yeah sure so it was in the i don't think we broadcast all day even so it was in the the evening sometime and uh, like i say my girlfriend maybe some friends but that's also the nature of college radio especially at a, a small school sure so you continue that. So then you go on to, let's be more specific about your education. So you go on to grad school at, at North Carolina. Okay. Now at North Carolina, the, uh, as is also true of many universities, at North Carolina, the, the uh, FM station was the uh, flagship station for a state network of what we now know as NPR stations. Right. And so there was no opportunity for a person like me to to be involved. So that was two years where I wasn't involved in radio. And then my first job was at the University of South South Carolina in Columbia. They had a college radio station that was broadcast out of the continuing education department. And during the daytime, it was, you know, uh, vernacular music, for lack of a better word, rock, pop, whatever. Mm -hmm. And that was supposed to be training uh, young DJs. But in the evening from 6 to midnight or 6 to 1 a.m., it was classical music. And I came and got involved. And up till then, there had been no adult, like I was a whopping 24, no adult uh, (laughs) involved except administration. And the people said, oh, well, we'd be glad to have you come in. And and yes, would you like to run the station during the classical time? Yeah, I could do that. And, And we'll pay you. I said I could do that very well. So <laughs> at my second radio gig, I was running and programming a classical music station, uh, six or seven hours a night, seven nights a week. And that was, that was a lot of fun. I lost some of the original answers that way because they were used to programming their own shows. And I feel a little bit guilty about that now that I look back at it. But yeah, that was fun. We had some record service from some companies, so it it was a nice situation. The and labels the labels would send in their yes, records. Yes, yes. Right. Angel in Columbia, I know for sure. I don't know, remember who else did that. Mm-hmm. So we had material to work with, and since I was the music librarian, I also brought in from the music library a lot of material for me to use. So there was a a variety of things drawn from several sources and my own, of course, uh, burgeoning library. So then I went from there to back to graduate school at the University of Virginia, WTJU, and you can figure it out at some point, Thomas Jefferson University. Oh, gotcha. Okay. <laughs> that was a station pretty much like uh, WVUD. It was a block station. 
It was student-run. I was, again, doing mostly, well, I was doing entirely classical music. I, I always seemed to be doing classical because I was one of the few people who actually had much knowledge about classical music. And it, it was like, you know, it gave them uh, a little uh, extra je ne sais quoi to have classical music going on. So I did that at uh, UVA for two years, I think. Your first master's was in, as a master of library science, mm-hmm. an MS, and then an MA in music history. Well, I, I always tell people I went to three of the best schools in the country and was involved in the weakest programs. So that's the way I got through. Uh, the faculty, in, in fact, were uh, bright young things on the way up. So we had a really good faculty there. You know, I was still buying jazz, and they had several clubs in Charlottesville, which would, from time to time would bring jazz acts in. I got to uh, hear Gary Burton for one of many times, and I was probably as close to him as I am to you now, which is about two yards. Yeah, right. And uh, places like that. So I continued to be involved in jazz uh, as a listener, and but again, it was classical music that they needed, uh, and it was classical music that the, that the MA did. I took the MA because... Uh, like so many other things in my life, I needed two master's degrees to get the really big paying jobs in library <laughs> science. Uh, and I won't even get, we won't even get into that. Right, but, right, but you right. know, you don't, you mm-hmm. don't do things, you know, better than I do. You don't do things uh, just to make money. No. Uh, you do things because no. you enjoy them. And I did very Certainly. much. Very good. So you arrived at VUD in 81. Did you start out doing jazz and classical when you got here? No. Uh, when I first got here and said, you know, who I was and what I'd done and were there any openings on the classical music shows. And there was a student that was running that block, as usually was the case back then. Sure. And he said, well, we'll get back to you. Well, they never did. And I thought, okay, well, this is the end, you know. Yeah. And then one day somebody called me and said, could you come and and do classical? Of course we want you to do classical. There's no one that could do it any better. What's wrong with these people who didn't jump on you when you came there? So uh, I I came and I started, and it was still the five days a week, two to three hours, depending on what time of history you got there. I think it was three hours at that point. There were some people who knew about classical music and some people who didn't know much about classical music but were very interested, and it was a good program. And uh, at some point, I was doing one show a week, and then somebody did something foolish, like graduate or something like that, and there was nobody around to do classical shows. And so I said, well, I'll, I'll just work that Thursday. That'll, that'll be all right. So then I had two classical music shows, and then I'd made friends with people in the jazz block. That wasn't hard to do. They were a very good group of people. Well, would you like to do a jazz show? And I said, Sure, I'd love to do a jazz show. And so that got me into Monday Night Jazz. And that's where I've been all the time. I occupy more real estate on WVUD than anybody else. <laughs> also added a, an interview program, uh, which I've just lately uh, ceased doing because it just wasn't as satisfying as it used to be. Maybe I'll start up again sometime, but they let me. You know, for me, I couldn't get enough radio well, we're glad. We're glad that you couldn't. <laughs> I, I always seemed to be doing classical because I was one of the few people who actually had much knowledge about classical music. And it, it was like, you know, it gave them uh, a little uh, extra 
je ne sais quoi to have classical music going on. So I did that at uh, UVA for two years, I think. And like so many radio stations and colleges, it was in the basement just as we are now. And that wasn't an ideal situation either. Right. Um, where did I go from there? Uh, well, I'll tell you why you're there. Let's stop while you're there and just say, so you're, you're, you're doing your second master's now. Mm-hmm. Your first, Third, yeah, second master's, yeah. Right. Your first master's was in, as a master of library science, mm-hmm. an MS, and then an MA in music history. Uh, so well, how about let's just talk about that music history uh, MA. Is that history of all musics or, or what or, or – how do, you, well, how do you narrow it or whatever? Well, I, I always tell people I went to three of the best schools in the country and was involved in the weakest programs. So that's the way <laughs> I got through. Uh, again, the music uh, department at UVA was at that point very small. And uh, the master's degree program, I think, had like 12 people there. And it was, yes, mostly focused on classical music, though you could uh, – branch out a little bit. I don't think there was anything to encourage encourage that. The faculty, in, in fact, were uh, bright young things on the way up, so we had a really good faculty there. Um, it, it's all changed since then and, and, and grown in, incredibly. But, um, yeah, it was... But, you know, I was still buying jazz and still... They had several clubs in Charlottesville, which... Would, from time to time, would bring jazz acts in. I got to uh, hear Gary Burton for one of many times, and I was probably as close to him as I am to you now, which is about two yards. Yeah, right. And uh, places like that. So I continued to be involved in jazz uh, as a listener and whatever. But again, it was classical music that they needed, uh, and it was classical music that the that the MA did. I took the MA because. Uh, like so many other things in my life, I needed two master's degrees to get the really big paying jobs in library <laughs> science. Uh, and I won't even get, we won't even get into that. Right, but, right, but you right. know, you don't, you mm-hmm. don't do things, you know, better than I do. You don't do things uh, just to make money. No. Uh, you do things because no. you enjoy them. And I did very Certainly. much. Very good. Um, Well, let's see. So, how let, let's say, how does jazz kind of come back into your your radio life? Uh, well, the next place I went from the University of Virginia was the University of Illinois, uh, where I was working as a music librarian in a library that had a large staff of professional librarians. They also had um, a station that was a flagship for by then actually an NPR network, and they were mostly classical music. But they had a jazz show on Saturday nights from about 11 until 1 or 2 in the morning, what I began to refer to as the jazz ghetto, uh, Mm because that was what most of them were on public radio at that point. And the title of the station, uh, the title of the show was Just Jazz. And I learned later that that was the most popular name for a radio, a jazz radio show in the country. So there must have been. Uh, hundreds of just jazz programs stealing my very original uh, <laughs> title. And the other interesting thing about it was, and it didn't bother me, uh, was that I wasn't paid. 
everybody else at the station was paid, but not the jazz guy. Uh, <laughs> so I continued. And, and again, in, in Champaign-Urbana, there was a lot of opportunity to hear live jazz. And so that continued to be an important part of my life. Uh, just before I left there, they offered me a job at the radio station, a real paying job. And uh, talked about it with the, with the station manager. And they actually would have paid me less to be a radio announcer than I was making as um, a, a, li- a professional librarian. Now, we were considered faculty there. That was a, a trend at that particular point. And we were making, as librarians, less than the average uh, amount for a faculty member. So you can put all that together and see that, <laughs> no, I couldn't have lived on that, <laughs> nah. even by myself. So I was flattered, and I, I really would have loved to have done that because it was really a very fine station. Uh, one little quirk was that being in Champaign-Urbana in central Illinois, at noon they did the futures report the corn futures, the wheat oh. futures, the hog futures. Right. And, and I just had this uh, wonderful image of farmers out in the field in their air-conditioned tra- air tractors stopping and turning the radio over to WILL to get the futures report and then turning it back to wherever they were listening to <laughs> and continuing with what they, where they worked. <laughs> But it was that was one of the little quirks of the station. Well, you never know. You well, it it probably was what paid the bills actually. Oh, okay, <laughs> good, good. Yeah. Um, so you're you're beginning a string of uh, of music of music librarian uh, jobs, yeah. right? So um, why don't you want why don't you talk about? We can give music librarian like four or five minutes. I'm oh, like, can what, we? So what? So what do you? Uh, what do you? What? Uh, what did you do? What do you do? Are you retired? I'm now? retired now. Okay. But you eventually ended at the University of Delaware and did right. it for many years, right? But what? So if you're the music librarian, you're keeping the records in order, right? Well, back then. <laughs> but, but, <laughs> a little bit well, more than that. Sure, yes. sure, sure. Uh, the other thing that's interesting is that, uh, like being in radio, my real professional training was on the job. There was nobody there to tell me how to do it. And my uh, college grad school training was not worth much uh, in many ways. Um, at South Carolina, I was head of this music library for the music school, music department. And I got to choose and buy the books, the scores, the records, later on videos uh, for the library, to build a library that was uh, to support the activities of the music department. That's neat. That's very exciting. Uh, I also, not so much there because it was basically an undergraduate department, uh, was able to aid students in their research, uh, find things that they needed to find and know about. You know, if they were preparing for a recital and they needed such and such a kind of music, I helped them find it. Uh, so working with the students a great deal, and that also was very satisfying, and, and working with the faculty in much the same ways. So you're, you're working in a teaching sort of uh, role as well as collecting a uh, collecting role. And uh, yes, I had to catalog all the stuff that, most of the, all the recordings that I ordered, I had to, to catalog. Um, there's a 
what we call a backlog in library science, which is what it is in any other place. And I always left a, a nice backlog wherever I left of things that needed to be cataloged because that's not the fun part of it. That's really yeah. dreary. Uh, when I was at the University of Illinois, I, in fact, worked as a music cataloger, as a record cataloger, and that was my full-time job, was cataloging the, uh, the sound recordings that came in. And when I got there, they had a backlog of 18,000 LPs, and I had to walk through the door. They were around, the shelves were around the door that I had to walk through to get to the catalog department every day and sort of look at those and think, never, they'll never dwindle down. And shortly after I left, they moved into CDs. So I don't know what ever happened to it. You know, it was wow. like, but it was, it was an impossible task. But again, it, it was a good group of people to work with. I didn't get to work with students as much as I had before. Uh, and, you know, you know that on, if you're very lucky on a job, you get to learn while you're working. And I learned a lot more about music and what was available and what I wanted to buy uh, in that situation. Uh, and of course, with the other, any other job, there was more uh, besides that involved. Right. So I came to the University of Delaware and have remained. And what year was this? That was 1981. Okay. And again, I was a one-man show. I always think it's funny that at, in South Carolina and in Delaware, I was the only music librarian in the state. Now, the state wasn't aware of that because the state didn't know I existed, but that was all right, too. <laughs> and this time, though, I was uh, employed by the music department rather than the, the uh, library system. And that does make a lot of difference because you really are immediately, uh, you should be immediately responsible to the needs of the department. But on the other hand, when it comes to funding, you're the low man on the totem pole, and they really don't understand funding uh, like a library would understand, especially for equipment. I mean, when the wind ensemble needs a new bassoon, it doesn't matter what you need. Uh, you know, that, right. that there were right. priorities, and I was one of the lower priorities. Uh, I learned to live on gifts at that point because that was the point at which many people were approaching retirement age or downsizing or for whatever and were looking to donate their record their their collections to people and i really built a very nice collection uh here on the basis of gifts uh, again when i left there was a huge backlog and that was sort of one of the p things that people didn't like plus the fact that i insisted even though we were living in the age of uh, compact disc for much of when, when I was there, that there was usefulness in LPs. Everybody thought anything that was important was already on CD. Well, that just wasn't the case. And even if it was, I wouldn't be able to buy it because I didn't have any budget. Mm -hmm. uh, mm -hmm. So we kept the collection, and, and I insisted that this was to be used. Um, at about the time I retired, it really was kind of sad because people weren't even using CDs anymore. They were going to the internet and most especially to YouTube uh, for their listening or downloading right. for themselves. And right. I thought, you know, 
as sad as it is to me to think that I've got, I built a collection of something like 15,000 recordings, um, how wonderful it must be for a, a student musician to go to YouTube and not just listen to a piece, but to watch somebody really great playing that piece or anybody playing that piece. Sure, uh, sure. So I, I couldn't be too uh, critical about the situation because it did improve, as things usually do, despite what we may think uh, in times of change. And there's some there's there's a movement back to vinyl, at least in the rock and pop world. Uh, some, you know, some alternative rock people uh, are buying vinyl for fifteen or twenty dollars mm, or so, or twenty five or thirty in you know, jazz. Yeah, right. Um, let's just diverge for one second and. I do think that, uh, you know, LPs are a superior sound to CDs. CDs mm-hmm. are certainly easy to use and easy to do a radio show with. Uh, <laughs> but, uh, you know, I do think, uh, I mean, I think, just to finish your thought there mm-hmm. about your, the collection that you left there, uh, is it still available to the public? Well, for a long time while I was there, they had decided that it was not, it was only available to to check out. I mean, it was available to listen to, to the students, to any students there. But the only people who could check things out were the faculty, faculty from all over, but they didn't know that. Uh, Uh, Just because it's, unlike the library system here at the University of Delaware, I did not have the power to uh, charge over uh, fees for people who didn't bring their things in. And, you know, that sort of leaves you... uh, very weak in a situation like that. Right. So uh, I understand that there is um, discussion to move the CDs from uh, Amy DuPont Music Building over to Morris Library. It hasn't happened yet. What has happened is that something I've always wanted is that the records, record and records now, not recordings, of the, the, the catalog records have been put into uh, Delcat uh, so that everybody in the university can, in fact, find out what's there on the CDs, at least. So it is become a more public uh, situation. But, you know, to go back to what you were saying about the the superior sound of the the LP, somebody pointed out that, yes, it probably is, but every time you use it, you're... uh, Causing the sound to deteriorate. It's degrading. it's degrading, right, right, right. And it's also the best storage medium because as far as we know, if you keep it in its uh, jacket and in its inner sleeve and not play it, nothing's going to happen to it. Right, right. And, right. and so now, you know, so you, then you have that quandary of are you uh, collecting LPs because of the superior sound? Are you collecting LPs like stamps and you want that one that's not been opened because that's really got great sound, but I'm not going to listen to it because then it won't be worth as much. Uh, uh, I know exactly what you yeah. I, I always complain about that. Do you have it on the blue label? Yeah. Do you have the one that was released in Denmark for six weeks and they pulled it and you know, I'm like, exactly. you know, that may be the greatest record in the world. It may be the worst record in the world. I and no then idea. there's the whole yeah. idea of the, the RCA classical and, and uh, pop and jazz that the, the shaded dog and the white dog and the shaded dog with the, sh- the dog. Well, I don't, I don't you're, oh, you don't know about no, that? No, I, I don't know that. No, 
Tell, and you ran a record store? Tell the world. Well, I, <laughs> we didn't specialize in classical, but we had well, it. But I still... Um, on the Columbia, uh, RCA uh, label in the, on, the, on the disc was mm-hmm. the dog. Sure. It's in right. the other room. The, right. the, 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 his master's voice, dog. Right, right. And some of them were white dogs. I mean, it was a, it was a replica. It looked like a dog. And some of them had brown patches or something. That, that was the shaded dog. And somehow those coordinate with whether the sound was better or not. And yes, there are people mm-hmm. that will now pay $600 to $1,000 for a shaded dog version of something else. And then RCA completely upset everything because the next gen- uh, generation of their releases was on those flimsy uh, flexi discs. Flexi disc, yeah, mm-hmm. that nobody mm-hmm. wanted. And then, mm-hmm. of course, the CD just pull the rug out from under all of those collectors and you hardly can give away anything right. used uh, now, I'm finding, unfortunately. <laughs> uh, well, uh, classical so th- people are often autophiles, too. I mean, yeah. more so than pop. Well, they try pop. to be. You know, mm-hmm. I can imagine somebody buying, Mercury was another, Mercury was another uh, audiophile label and people would buy uh, Leroy Anderson records, the LPs, mm-hmm. because of the great sound. And I can just see somebody sitting in their music room with these wonderful speakers and the you know $25,000 amplifiers and all that saying, man, listen to that triangle. Ain't that triangle good? <laughs> you know, they don't have, know anything else about what they're listening to or they wouldn't, wouldn't have messed with this. Listen to those hooves. Yeah, exactly. Um, we should say Leroy Anderson did kind of pop yes. Uh, yes. pop classics, would you call yeah. them? I guess so. Uh, always heard around the holidays. and, uh, and Sleigh ride. And sleigh ride is yeah. probably the most popular, yeah. right. But uh, great, you know, very well done, right? very well done, you know. But, right, right. But are, are they listening to Beethoven on those labels right. or, you know? Right. Um, well, I always think the bass, I mean, I always think the bass is better as far as rock and roll. Mm-hmm. I mean, I'm kind of a bass mm-hmm. and drums person and just there's a warmer bottom mm-hmm. sound to it. It was a little dry on CD. Uh, you know, I didn't, I play tons of CDs on my show now. I, I, I like you I'm say, there's a, a convenience and mm-hmm. probably many of your LPs have been played to death. Well, literally. right, right. They get used. Mm-hmm. Right. I always thought that, uh, I mean, I admire people that uh, keep keep the LPs and never play them. I just could not do that. I would, you know. No, no, that's I, not the I played the all point. my stuff. Now, there are, Someone near and dear to me said the whole idea of high fidelity uh, was because most of the people involved in that were middle-aged and upper-middle-aged men who couldn't hear the upper registers at all because their hearing had started to deteriorate. So they had to get these machines to produce the sounds that they could actually hear again. I don't know. This person was something of a cynic. (laughs) Well, listen, let's talk about, so let's talk about WVD. So, so you ride the VUD in 81. So mm-hmm. uh, you've been with the station now. Um, let's describe um, how you've settled into the programs that you're doing. Um, like, for instance, did you start out doing jazz and classical when you got here? No. I started off, came over here uh, when I first got here and said, you know, who I was and what I'd done and, and uh, were there any openings on the classical music uh, shows and there was a student that was running that block 
as usually was the case back then. Sure. And he said, well, we'll get back to you. Well, they never did. And I thought, okay, well, this is the end, you know? Yeah. And then one day somebody called me and said, could you come and, and do classical? Of course we want you to do classical. There's no one that could do it any better. What's wrong with these people who didn't jump on you when you came there? So uh, I, I came and I started and there were, it was still the five days a week, two to three hours, depending on what time of history you got there. Right. I think it was three hours at that point. Mm-hmm. And there were some people who knew about classical music and some people who didn't know much about classical music but were very interested. Um, but it was a, 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 it was a group that was a group, three or four of us that were very interested and it was a good program. And uh, at some point, I was doing one show a week. I'm a greedy something or other. Yes. Uh, that wasn't nice. <laughs> uh, there was, there was, I was doing one show, and then somebody did something foolish, like graduate or something like that. And there was nobody around to do classical shows. And so I said, well, I'll, I'll just work that Thursday That'll, that'll be all right. So then I had two classical music shows. And then somebody, I had, I'd made friends with people in the jazz block. And that wasn't hard to do. They were a very good group of people. Sure. Ron Whitehead and some of the others. Right. Uh, said, well, would you like to do a jazz show? And I said, sure, I'd love to do a jazz show. And so that got me into Monday Night Jazz. And that's where I've been all the time, I occupy more real estate on WVUD than anybody else. <laughs> also added a, an interview program, uh, which I've just lately uh, ceased doing because it just wasn't as satisfying as it used to be. Maybe I'll start up again sometime if they let me. But, you know, for me, I couldn't get enough radio uh, as you Well, we're glad. We're glad that you couldn't. <laughs> Describe that show you just dropped, uh, the interview show? Yeah. Uh, it was called Art Sounds, and I interviewed people involved in the arts. Uh, again, the, the person who talked about males losing their hearing also said a couple of times in the course of doing this, uh, remember, Michael, it's art sounds. It's not music sounds. And I said, but that's those are the people I know. But I interviewed people from... Uh, mostly music and people around here. Uh, promoters began to send me uh, people to interview, um, interview people in music. There were already people from various museums that were starting to come and, and ask me to uh, do interviews with them. And finally I got to, I was saying, you're taking up my music time. I'm going to create a show where we can do this. And, uh, in the course of uh, all of this, I made connections with the uh, woman who ran the Biggs Museum, with David Amato and the Delaware Symphony when he got here, the woman who wrote, who ran the uh, Delaware Chamber Music Festival, and, and people like that. So I got a lot of, of, of people like that to, uh, to be on the show. There were various local artists uh, who came on and were looking for some publicity. There's a woman who... A couple of years ago, 
painted the mural on the side of Wonderland. I don't know whether you've ever seen that or not. Yeah, mm-hmm. where okay. we we did an interview with her. Uh, you know, just about anything that in, was involved in art. Some authors. I stayed away from authors because I didn't want to have to read the books. Uh, but uh, you know, the I know full, what you mean. The sure, full, full gamut, but mostly mostly musicians. And I, oh, one of my my the crown, the jewel in my crown was that I got to interview Bob Newhart. Wow. Wow, yes. That was and it's on a podcast here. You can go and listen to it if you'd like. Oh, okay. See, you don't look at the website any more than I do, do you? No, I don't. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I soon will though. <laughs> uh, that was when the Grand was still cooperating with us and when somebody would come they'd ask to uh, to uh, you know have people interview us and Bob Newhart came. And I said, "Yeah, I'll do that." I love Bob Newhart, but I thought I've been watching late night television enough, long enough to know that when comedians come on, they do part of their routine as the conversation. Sure. And I thought, I'm damned if I'm going to let him do that. You know, we're going to talk and we're going to mm-hmm. talk about comedy. Mm-hmm. And we did. And I think it kind of surprised him that he wasn't able to just slip in uh things that you know he had on the top of his head right, out of right, his right. act mm-hmm. but it went very well and i thought it was it was a, a good interview i don't think i've ever actually well maybe i have it was one of the best interviews i've ever done because i really was inspired and i really was determined to do i had a goal and i fulfilled that goal yeah good and good. uh yes it's it's in our podcast if people want to listen to it um under art sounds or I don't know what it's under. I've never listened to it. No, I have a copy of my own. I can listen to it anytime I want. Right. To. Right. Now that's as opposed to speaking of Ron Whitehead, uh, before I had the art sounds program, you know, all of us did interviews, uh, as part of our shows, but Lee Konitz, who was a great alto saxophone, jazz alto saxophones had come to campus and Ron Whitehead had somehow finagled an interview with him. And so, and we were downstairs by this time. And so uh, Ron asked me to work the board while he was doing the interview. Well, I thought Ron was smarter than that, but he wasn't. Because, well, you know, you've listened to my shows. <laughs> I, I talk good, but I don't work the machines very good. And we went through this interview. I was sitting here where we are now, and, and, and in the big room was Ron and, and Lee Konitz, and it was a wonderful interview, just wonderful and there were three buttons to push, but I only pushed two of them. Uh, and Ron uh, got home, uh, and about an hour later, he called me and said, Michael, yes. Did you turn the thing on? Yes. Did you push such and such and such and such and such a button? Oh. And I will have to say for Ron, he did not come and burn my house down, well, as I would have been perfectly justified at that point. So yeah. after that, I left it to somebody else to engineer interviews if I needed to do that. Right. Yeah. You've got me looking at my screen here now, making sure that we're okay. <laughs> yeah. It's, uh, I, I, dread, I dread that for sure. Yes, indeed. Uh, well, that's good that it's that's on the website, so we'll, we'll try to have yes. a, a reference yes. to that somehow. It's, 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 you know, as things change and as you... Oddly enough, as you've been in a place uh, for a long time, you actually lose some of the context you've had, and that's been the case. And it's just been sort of frustrating to line up guests uh, locally, so I I just decided to give that a a hiatus. Right. 
Right. Um, let's see, what else did I have here? Uh, I was going to, I missed the setup for the line. I was going to say, do you miss the card catalog? Yes, I do. As a matter of fact. Uh, and, and I had a card catalog at home of my own collection. Uh, but like the backlog in three other university music libraries, I got such a huge backlog that I just thought, forget it. Just forget it. I know where things are. Right. On the other hand, it's, you know, well, you know. Right. Well, you know, I mean, I, I used to own a record store just for the, and I spent plenty of time filing records and yep. keeping records of records. And uh, uh, I love it, actually. I still, to this day. Another thing I like about YouTube is when they will put uh, the actual record on, you know, mm -hmm. uh, visually. Sometimes the record's actually playing. Sometimes oh, yeah. the record's just on there for your enjoyment to yeah. read the label. But yeah. I'm a label reader from way back. I mean, <laughs> I, you know, I can tell you producers and songwriters and, and, and publishing companies and all kinds of stuff like it's that. It's a sickness. It and, really uh, is. You know, but YouTube, somebody, you know, Somebody was paying attention and yeah. they, they just, they do a good, there's lots of junk, you know, there's lots of sure. poor quality stuff and bad information, but there's good information if you, if you know what you're doing. Uh, so there was jazz going on at VUD uh, when you got here. I mean, they, Oh yes. Yeah, yes. Have, and right. I, I became involved very quickly with the people who were doing the jazz band and I emceed some of their concerts and uh, had some of them on to interview and would play music that they were going to play. Uh, they wouldn't let me play. Uh, but, uh, yes, I've had a very close, and, and in fact, one of my best friends from the music department is now the head of the uh, jazz band, Tom Palmer. Oh, sure, Tom. You know mm -hmm. Tom? Yeah, a little um, bit. A little bit. Mm -hmm. So, yes, I, I've, I've, I've kept that, those two things running parallel. My collection of jazz is probably actually, no, I was about to say it's probably bigger than my collection of classical, but now that's not, but they're pretty even well, at home. Um, very good. Yes, well, that's great. That's great. Now, so that I, some, I'm asking this question of some jocks. I'll ask it to you, but has your audience changed over the years? I mean, and you can talk about two audiences, I guess, but can you tell who's out there and, has that changed over the well, years? Well, you know, mm -hmm. I never give out the telephone number, uh, partly because if you ask for a request, you've got this, frequently got this situation where you're playing Bill Evans and Stan Getz and, and very subtle jazz musicians like that, and somebody calls and says, can you play some weather report? Yeah. Right. And you think, either they're not listening or I'm not doing a good enough job Right. You know, that they're listening to this and thinking, well, the hell with that. I'm going to play something really good. <laughs> I'm asked for something really good. So, and, and, or it just doesn't, you know, it just doesn't fit. And I, so I quit giving out the phone number, but they're always, and I'm sure you have these people too. They're all these people that find you and they find you as a friend. <laughs> and that's mostly the calls I got. Uh, there was a time when the, the, well, yes, both shows, the, the audience is predominantly older people. That's, that's absolutely what you're looking for, isn't it? Well, yeah. Or you, yeah. Could, you might say I'm surprised by the number of young people listening, but yeah. that's not the case. Uh, well, I, don't, I don't know, and I'm not worried about it, really. Right, I right. present things 
I've always, in everything I've done, and I've done a lot of things related to music, looked upon myself as sort of a missionary for music and for uh, the kind of music that doesn't get heard, the contemporary 20th century and 21st century American music and jazz. And I just put it out there. And I learned, I've learned long ago that that's the best you can do. You can't, you can't, as the proverb says, lead a horse to drink. You can't use all of these educational theories and that sort of thing to get them to like music. Um, there's a story that an orchestra in, I think it's the Portland Symphony Orchestra, was looking for ways of, of uh, getting more people to come to their concerts. So they had a concert jointly with a gospel choir. And it had the best response in terms of tickets and audience and all, mm -hmm. of anything they'd ever had. And then they hired a consultant. And the consultant basically said, have more concerts like that. <laughs> well, then you're not a symphony orchestra anymore, you know? And I could, right. I, I very definitely expand the boundaries of what I play on my classical or my jazz shows. Uh, to suit my needs. That's why I don't get paid. Uh, but I think if there's the young people there listening and they've discovered something, good, I've done my job. I doubt that there's many, I doubt there's many uh, young people listening because we don't find as many young people coming in here and really interested in much of anything. There's yeah. not as much curiosity, I find, uh, they may be people who, I'm not saying they're dumb or they're uncultured or anything like that. They just don't have the curiosity to explore things other than what they know. And, you know, if you look at what media they're uh, uh, exposed to, you can understand why they seem satisfied with what they're getting. You know, I, I find it very funny how many people I've heard come in and say, I want to do an Eagles show. Yeah, man. And, you know, this is like 20 years after the Eagles have flown away. Uh, <laughs> and you think, really? That's what you want to do? Yeah. And I think of one of the music, general music directors we had once. No, he was, he was uh, head of the, the student block. The, uh, what did they call that? Uh, A cutting edge. Cutting edge. Mm -hmm. And he had very definite ideas of what was cutting edge and what wasn't. And if it didn't meet his criterion, it didn't get into the, into the files. And that was a little bit uh, yeah. too harsh, but he was interested. He wanted other people to be curious and interested like him, and they were there. That's not happening much anymore. Yeah, I think another... Another downside to the digital uh, revolution is that uh, music isn't really played on speakers that much. I, the story I always tell mm -hmm. is taking my daughter to college, and we moved her in and went down a couple of weeks later, and I'm thinking, oh, we're going to go in the dorms, and it's going to be cooking. It's like a monastery in the dorms. Mm -hmm. There's no... I mean, I heard Bitches Brew when I was in college, mm -hmm. and then I heard the Allman Brothers, and then I heard Dan Hicks and the Hot Licks, and mm -hmm. just you know a variety of stuff. Mm -hmm. Not a not a tremendous variety, but a fair, a fair amount of variety. And now, you know, you're led to it by reading about it, I guess, which, which I'm not against that either. I always read it. Plenty of people I end up liking that I read about them mm -hmm. first before I sure. heard them. But uh, you should 
be exposed to some music in the air, you know, just yeah. but without choosing it. You know what I mean? You know, what I mean? Mm-hmm. Or, you know mm-hmm. and that's just not existing. It's a head. It's the headphone Headphones. generation. And I mm-hmm. always think that's interesting because we've we got to the point where audio is, I won't say as good as it could ever be, but as good as it's ever been, really spectacular. And now we're listening to it through earbuds. <laughs> which are these tiny little things that can't give you much are the sound from your your screen on your computer and even that's not much anymore no. uh and the other thing is i can't i never have understood because i'm an old fogey that how you can actually get to the things when you've got an infinite amount of everything how do you find out about these things and yet I've, I see the kids bring, they don't even bring in their records anymore. They bring in their laptops and plug their laptops in. And I'm not saying that's inferior, mm-hmm. but how do they know what to put on there? I mean, yes, I know it. They download from this one and that one and the yeah. other one, but I don't, I don't understand. Yeah, I don't know. I, I guess they follow certain sites or certain, certain people on, uh, how the kids don't even do Facebook anymore, but they... You go to trusted sources, which I guess is going back to how we all started, that mm-hmm. you mm-hmm. you know, you listen to your favorite DJs or you, you respected the opinion of people who you've followed their recommendation before and they were correct or whatever. But I don't know. I still like the fact that you just suddenly I, – I remember one time being uh, in the gym at, at Slazianum School where they were doing the regular Saturday night dances or whatever, and they had hired WFIL uh, for a brief period uh, to – run those dances and FIL brought in these really giant speakers and put them up uh, among over top of the bleachers. Mm-hmm. And it's the first time I heard a James Brown record called there was a time. And I, uh, I wasn't listening, I guess, to the record or the stations that I would end up listening mm-hmm. to all the time. And it was just like, Whoa, it just, it almost, I hate to say it changed my life, but it was mm-hmm. like, wow, this is, mm-hmm. this is when he, he gave up changing chords and things like that. It was just, you know, mm-hmm. uh, and, yeah, I may never have heard that in a in another situation. You know, what I mean, you have to be kind of open to to uh, something you're not, you know, by misdirection or something. I don't, I don't know how to put it, but and that's the way I feel also about hearing music live. Mm-hmm. And it makes me very sad to go to a jazz event when there's that opportunity and find a, a very small or middle size uh, audience. Uh, I went this past weekend down to the Freeman stage because uh, this 14-year-old jazz pianist, Joey Alexander, whose record, CD we got here, uh, was playing. And I was listening to the Freeman stage is in the midst of a, uh, in the middle of a development that's kind of high-end. And I think there are a lot of people who live there permanently, a lot of people who come down from Washington, you know. But you could and tell- And where is it? I'm sorry. Where, in uh, Selbyville, Oh, wow. Okay. And you think of in Selbyville, but when you see Bayside, you're not in Selbyville anymore. You're in this very upscale development. Mm-hmm. And I was listening to a couple of people talk, and one woman must have come to everything that was at the Freeman stage. And she said, this is the smallest audience we've had. And I thought, yeah, that's right. That's why the grand doesn't present jazz anymore because their audiences that they used to present jazz in the baby grand right. and couldn't fill up the baby grand. And yet that's the best way to really 
come to love something and know about something and, and see something and say, oh, that's what's making that noise, you know, all that. I still do that with symphony concerts. I think, wow, that's a bassoon and a clarinet together. What a wonderful idea. What a wonderful sound. Right. Uh, so there's all of that that you get involved with the music. And I think that's another problem is that music is everywhere. People, not just kids, people don't get involved with music anymore as, the, as, as we would like them to. Uh, yeah. I don't know. It's, uh, yeah, I don't know. But I, th I think I'll, I'll tell a story I love to tell. <laughs> You've given me the opportunity to tell these. Mm -hmm. uh, when I was in college, the women's college uh, had what was called a ring dance, and maybe lots of schools at that time had them. And that was when the women got their class rings. And it was a big deal. And the women were all dressed in formal white gowns, and the men should have been in tuxedos, and most of us were. Mm -hmm. At the time I was at Richmond, whoever was planning the music was a little ahead of things or out of touch or whatever, but they liked soul music. So they brought in Sam and Dave and people like that. You would have mm. had a field day. Yeah, right. Well, for this dance, they brought in Stacy Henry and the Majestics, a local group. Well, Stacy and the Majestics was like a, I don't know, eight or 10 piece group. They had trumpet section, trombonist, saxophone section, rhythm section, and Stacy played tenor saxophone. And every piece they played, Stacy played a solo, I mean a jazz solo of some length. Wow. And so, you know, and there was all the other kids just dancing, you know, because the- Because you could, you could dance to it. Yeah. Yeah, sure. Because uh, mm -hmm. yeah. he was, I mean, Stacy was, uh, used to playing for black audiences, you know, who would appreciate that and dance to it as well. Mm -hmm. Well, I spent most of the evening sort of hanging over my, my uh, date's shoulder, listening to the music rather than paying a whole lot of attention to her and moving ever so slightly so that we could still call it dancing. <laughs> uh, but that was that's, the point being, I was listening to what was going on, not just the beat, you know, and they had the trumpet section, the local group, sure. trumpet section that was just as tight as could be. You're used to hearing that. Mm -hmm. Maybe sure. tighter than some of the sure. things you're used to hearing. Sure. And, and mm -hmm. uh, saxophone solo, jazz solos, jazz solos from some of the other instruments. It was wonderful. It was live. And you could really appreciate that much what was going on, that much more what was going on. That's a good story. I, you know, Right, I was always kind of like I went to all the dances. Hardly ever danced, you know, mm -hmm. the Saturday night mm -hmm. dance or the Friday night dance, whatever. But just listen to the music coming from the rafters, mm -hmm. you know, of a gymnasium or something. But just seeing, just the fact that people danced and what records people danced to and things like that's another whole subject for another mm -hmm. whole show. Mm -hmm. But music and dance and uh, and just I remember opening the, the doors once to St. Elizabeth's Gym and and people were dancing right up against the gym. They, I mean, the place was packed and they were dancing to a Neil Diamond song called Cherry Cherry and Neil Diamond not known as a dance artist at all. But no. this particular song, no. uh, I ended up singing it in a band I was in, uh, was a real, had a good beat and stuff. But just, right, you don't, the live experience, you don't know. I'll tell you one more story. Mm -hmm. um, <laughs> this is your interview, but I'm this, I, I, I often have in here asking people when they first heard music, which I think I uh, live music I asked you later on mm -hmm. uh, earlier. But, uh, I went to a, a dance at Slazianum in the auditorium, 
And it was this group called the Magnificent Men, which were a blue-eyed soul band, a bunch mm-hmm. of white guys from Harrisburg and Lancaster and stuff that had made hit records on uh, Capitol, and they sounded really good. And uh, so the curtain, we sit down, and the curtain starts to open up, and they go into the opening horn lines of of Soul Man, speaking mm-hmm. of Sam and Dave, mm-hmm. and the guitar starts, and it's the ba da ba da ba da and I'm thinking, wow, I'm going to see this incredible horn section, and it's two guys. Um, and... Sam and Dave probably have five pieces, mm-hmm. I'm guessing, on the record mm-hmm. or something like that. But still, just a sax and a trumpet is all they had. Filled it up pretty well. My experience had been before that was watching Lawrence Wilk or, uh, <laughs> you know, or when yeah. Ed Sullivan would say to Ray Block, thanks, Ray, down yeah. in the pit or yeah. something like that. I thought an orchestra, I mean, I thought a full horn section or a marching band. You mm-hmm. know what I mean? I thought mm-hmm. you had to have. 12 or 15 pieces or yeah. something to get a full sound. And it was like, wow, you're getting a really full sound out of yeah. that. And, uh, you know, it just, again, that's where you suddenly you have to you're, reevaluate you're everything. All sorts of things. You know? Yeah, I, right. I remember mm-hmm. a favorite group of mine was Blood, Sweat, and Tears, who were appearing at the Grand as their gala. That tells you a lot about things. Oh, okay. Yeah. Um, partly just to see... How I, I went to one of their concerts partly just to see how they could do that live because you know there was a lot of uh, tinkering with things, yeah, studio tricks, yeah. or, or, well, possibly sometimes, yeah. yeah, and and additional musicians and all that. Sort okay, of that. right, right. But they did without, you know, this was pre lots of tricks uh, as far as right. live performances, just with their original personnel. Yeah, yeah, mm-hmm. and it sounded great. Uh, and and again, you you see them and you see what they're doing and you say, okay, a little bit of this is left out, a little bit of that, but they're still we're conveying the message. Uh, you just got to see music live. Sure, that's sure. Well, that's often the fight. The fight with the re- the group and the record company is the producer will want you know push you to your limits and say, oh, we gotta, let's throw this in, let's have let's have some strings mm-hmm. here and stuff like that, and you're. And then you find yourself 10 years later, you can't reproduce your hit record at all right. because you were forced into another key or you, you can't, economically you can't support the, the number of musicians needed to right. recreate the sound of your right. record and stuff. So that's good. Well, we're getting far. I don't know how much of this is going to survive the final cut, but <laughs> no. I, I'm enjoying it thoroughly, though. Um, I, I was even going to say, I mean, in Norfolk, and I'll just, just because I don't want to pass this up if it happened, but it sounds like it didn't, but Norfolk, uh, in in R and B and soul had a really thriving uh, scene, like in the in the early '60s, I would say. Gary U S Bonds, who did a quarter of the three, was out of Norfolk, and there was a guy named Jimmy Soul who who did "If You Want to Be Happy for the Rest of Your Life," then Pretty Woman, Your Wife, you know that, which actually comes from the islands. And and mm-hmm. I learned later on uh, there were several records that came out of there, uh, and there was a, a blue eyed soul group called Bill Deal and the Rondells who mm-hmm. had kind of a uh, uh, it turned out to be almost like a ska beat, but uh, it, it was like pre-ska. Or it was coexisting with ska. But anyway, I learned later on that like, if you want to be happy and stuff like that, it came right from like the Bahamas or mm-hmm. just certain artists. Mm-hmm. And But people would bring them back. The sailors would bring the records back right, to Norfolk right. and everybody was hip to what was going on. And sometimes uh, the sailors were from the Caribbean and were bringing it with them. I, my, I had a very conservative set of parents and I would have never been allowed to go to anything like that. And that conservatism sat with me for a long time in terms of my picking and choosing where I'd go. I don't like to feel out of place. 
And uh, right. But when I was in college, uh, the, the federal government had um, employment programs for students during the summer, summers for about four or five years. And I worked in the post office, which was a wonderful place to work. And you learned a lot about a lot. Uh, but if you know the post office now, just like then, it was main, mainly black people, black people who, because there's nothing technical or anything about delivering the mail, could get a good job and a good paying job, which they ultimately couldn't leave. And there were a lot of musicians that I worked with who wanted to be musicians or music teachers who could never leave. So I sort of you know, heard about the music, and there was an area called Church Street in Norfolk. Oh. That mm-hmm. was the center of black society. You know, it's the way the big businesses were and the clubs and all that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. So I was familiar with that part of the and and when I got to college and began to branch out, I discovered that in Norfolk there was the first all black music radio station was came out of Norfolk. And I started listening to it from time to time because there you got the real jazz, if you know what I mean. Mm-hmm. You got yeah. you got hard bop instead of Dave Brubeck. Right. I rather still prefer Dave Brubeck, but you know, you know right. what I'm talking about. I know about. what you mean, right. And so sometimes if you listen to the jazz show uh, and then sort of hold on for a little bit and you, you pick up all of these other things. And so there was, again, the opportunity to, uh, to hear a little bit of what I would not have heard under, the, uh, under normal circumstances. There was also a great record store downtown that was all jazz and, and black music that I never went into. Oh, man. <laughs> well, that's the way that I was, feel I, now. I was kind of raised the same way, except yeah. we, we did make it into dry goods that fit the market, which was uh, had all kinds of records. Yeah. And it had the albums stacked in the ra- packed in the racks. You had to like pull them apart to yeah. actually see them. Uh, but I mean, but it was, it was also the black radio. It was the white and the black record store. Yeah. You know I mean? Yeah. If you knew what you were looking, you know, if, if you knew, mm-hmm. whatever. And we were allowed to do that because mom was over in the rest of the dry goods buying bras or something, whatever they sold over there. You know what I mean? So go keep yourself busy. Yeah, go, exactly. You know, that kind of thing. Yes, I yeah. think we all went through that. Mm-hmm. Unfortunately, yeah. most of the department stores I was in had a lot of Jackie Gleason records and things like that. Yeah, right. The covers right. were nice. <laughs> the Montavani and whatever. Yeah, yeah. 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 Well, I had to ask you about that. Yeah, Church Street, uh, actually in that, in the famous record of U.S. Bonds, uh, don't you know that I danced? I danced till a quarter to three. That was their big hit, one of their, one of his big hits, and and da, 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 with the Church Street Five, he says the mm-hmm. Church Street Five mm-hmm. in there. I bet you he said the Church Street. Uh. Can't say it right either. <laughs> he eliminated the R. Yeah, uh-huh. the Church Street. Well, five. yeah, I always said uh, it was Daddy G and the Church Street Five. A guy named Gene Barge who played the great yeah. sax on yeah. a lot of those yeah. quarter to three records and stuff like thing. that. All right, I think, uh, do you have any words of wisdom or anything you want to wrap up with? Don't uh, get involved I think... in radio. <laughs> it's a sickness. I finally have found somebody in my life who doesn't feel challenged by my work in radio, doesn't, isn't jealous of radio, but all of them have realized there's music, there's radio, and then there's the woman. And they don't always like that. <laughs> Radio is a sickness as well. And I'm so happy. Somebody's, people keep asking me when they find out I'm retired. They say, are you still doing radio? And I said, 
I'm still breathing, aren't I? <laughs> now, I don't believe it'll last that long, or radio, but it's, it's a joy. It really is a joy. I agree with you. Mm-hmm. I, I, when all that talk of the internet there, I keep thinking radio is going to go away, but it, it really it hasn't. It's, it's not going to go away. I don't and think, and you know. I, I think you feel like I do about when is this going to go away? When is this wonderful set of studios that we have for WVUD and other places all around the country? Somebody's going to say either, oh, we could make this an NPR station, uh, uh, or sure. why are we supporting this? Nobody listens to it. Right. Uh, or at least nobody that they want to, <laughs> they care about. Right. Uh, but here we are at least. And as long as it's here, I'm going to try to be here too. I, it's just, it is nice. I don't give out the phone number, but it is so nice when you somebody calls or you meet somebody on the street and they say, I really enjoyed that piece that you played yesterday. That, right. You know, when they reveal that they're actually listening. Yeah, it's listening. one thing to say, I listen to your show all the time. You know, you kind of go like, yeah, mm-hmm. thanks. But when they say the other night you played such and such, I'm like, whoa, you actually are there. And that's you know? my point. I want them to find out about something they wouldn't have found out about. You know, sure. It's important to listen to Beethoven, but it's important to listen to Stravinsky as well. Yeah. Right. Right. All right. That's going to do it. Okay. Um, Thank you. Sure. I'm trying to think. Uh, when you were talking about the post office, you said, uh, we'll do a little political correctness here or something, but you said a lot of black people worked at the post office, which has always been true in our in our lifetimes. Um, and then you said they didn't, you know, they didn't need much technical. Uh, we can probably that. I'm just going to say. No, they, no, they, no. Uh, that, that, yes, I understand what you're saying. They, they didn't need much education. I, I, that's probably, is that. No, I didn't say it, education. Or, no, I, you, said, I know you didn't say education. Yeah. No. What I mean is that um, people can work, walk into the post office and get a very good job without having to be, have a college education without having technical uh, expertise. It's not to say that they don't, because there were a lot of college graduates in the post office who, as black people, couldn't get a job at that point. Right, right. Um, right, exactly. The, the post office in Norfolk was made up of two, two kinds of people. There were black people, many of whom were quite well ed- educated, who couldn't get a job and retired naval personnel, especially uh, chief petty officers, who were big time when they were in the Navy, but had no real training whatsoever, except to boss people around. Mm -hmm. And when they got out, the post office was their best choice too. Right. So it's, I, I, yeah, I know. As I was saying it, I was thinking, there's That's a better right. way to put this. But. You just put it better there and we have it on tape. So okay. if I decide, even, I don't know if I'm going to use that stuff or not. All right, we're going to officially end it here. Ready? Mm-hmm.